Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Scott Luton, Greg White, and Kevin L. Jackson here with you on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's live stream. Greg, how you doing? I'm doing very well, Scott. How are you doing? I am doing wonderful and great to see you. Reading is free. What's that? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and Kevin. We are totally unscripted here for anyone who has any doubt. (laughs) I'm still still kind of woozy from that swoosh. (laughs) <laughs> not you you've been used to beating the speed of sound forever kevin you can't be woozy well great to see you Just both. trying to keep up <laughs> trying i hear that uh aren't we all aren't we all well hey today's show is the digital transformers edition of the supply chain buzz here at supply chain now and we share some of the leading stories across global business focused on news and key developments and folks get ready because we want to hear from you as well but before we get into that, um, Kevin and Greg, mm-hmm. even more important than the buzz and digital transformers and global business, all that stuff, today is MLK Day 2023, right? Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., one of my favorite quotes here, until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. That is the Montgomery Civil Rights uh, Monument, I believe, Montgomery, Alabama. Um, with that as a backdrop, Greg and Kevin, and Greg, I'll start with you. When you think of um, uh, Dr. King's immense uh, change and contributions and leadership and legacy, what's some of your thoughts that comes to your mind? Well, I mean, if anyone's ever watched watched this before, they, they probably have a pretty good idea. But just to reinforce it, um, obviously, Dr. King is a great leader. Um, you know, he, he led um, with with love and learning. And I, I think that's a really important thing. One, you know, one of my favorite quotes was my post today, instead of an article, I posted that, um, you know, you cannot drive out hate with hate only love. I'm paraphrasing, of course, only love can do mm-hmm. that. And if that's an important thing, I'm, you know, what I, what I'm thinking about today, though, Scott, honestly, is that because of, of when he was killed, he was a history lesson for me. I never actually got to, hear him in person or, or see him or anything like that. And I think about how, how many people have kind of that experience of only, only hearing what people say about Dr. King. And I think it is worthwhile, definitely worthwhile to go back and hear it in man's own words, um, either in writing um, or in, uh, you know, in the, the videos or films as they were called then. Um, and understand the passion, the internal, it was an internal message. I mean, he didn't use a script. There was one instance where he was asked to speak at a church on uh, last minute notice and, and he had no script. Um, and it, it was about the Selma sanitation workers that he was speaking. He was yeah. supposed to speak at a larger event. That event got canceled in the last moment. He was asked to speak at a church and, um, just the, I mean, the, uh, um, gosh, just the complete honesty and openness with it, the consistency, I mean, considering everything that he endured, that he stuck to the message of only love can solve this problem. It, it's true. It is a truly amazing thing. And regardless of what your purpose is, taking that approach uh, to everything, everything that you do. Well said, Greg. Kevin. Well, you know, I was um, looking at uh, a new show last night, and they were talking about how the King Center was going to celebrate the day. And the, um, one of the things they were um, sort of, uh, I guess, bringing up is the fact that uh, a lot of people would ask, how would Dr. King uh, see today, like you know, you they, they showed a graph looking at um, 
the economic welfare of blacks uh, versus whites versus um, Latinos and, and, and others. And it said from 1960 all the way to now, the line that represented blacks was still on the bottom. Hmm. And they said, well, you know, how would Dr. King feel about that? After all these years, we still haven't made any any progress. And I said, well, you always move forward, but you never get to the end. Mm. The struggle is valuable, um, but it will never end. It doesn't end. You have to keep working. You have to keep uh, working towards uh, the future, working towards the, pri- the prize. So don't be upset if you don't think there has been advancement. Um, there has been advancement, and um, you need to accept the fact that you will always be struggling. Mm. And um, be, you know, and accept the, the good things uh, as well. Mm. So it, 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 it was kind of... Um, it, it sort of think, you know, you if you're in the struggle, you're still working, you're, you're still valuing change. And it's important to value the effort. It's the journey is more important than the destination. And we're mm-hmm. always on a journey. We are, uh, whether we acknowledge it or not, uh, on the tough days, on the good days, all points in between. And I appreciate you and Greg, both sharing some of what um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy means to you both. Uh, Tom Raftery, good to see you here. He's got another quote. Uh, One of his favorites is, quote, let us realize the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. I like that one too, Tom. Great to have you here. Um, Okay. And just uh, on a much lighter note, and Greg, Kevin, thanks again. And folks, feel free to drop. This is a special day. Uh, Whether it's your favorite MLK quote or related quote, or maybe it's something, you know, part of your service initiative, something you're doing today, uh, a special tradition, or maybe a way you're honoring uh, Dr. King's legacy throughout the year, right? Not just one day. Feel free to drop that in the comment, and we'll try to recognize that throughout. Um, on a much lighter note, I want to share this. Uh, so with that said, over the weekend, our uh, weekly LinkedIn newsletter, easy for me to say, uh, was dedicated <laughs> uh, to all kinds of uh, quotes and takes on Dr. King and a lot more. So y'all check that out. I think we're going to drop the link to that um, in the chat. Okay. So Greg and Kevin, uh, we ought to recognize also Catherine and Amanda, Chantel, all the folks behind the scenes helped to make it happen today. Happy, happy buzz day to you as well, Catherine. Um, <laughs> all right. Before we, we drive into, uh, I think, four stories we're going to tackle today, Greg and Kevin. I want to ask one of your favorite highlights from the weekend. Now, Greg, I'll start with you. I know the Chiefs didn't play because they're getting ready. They got like the number one seed. But what's one of your favorite highlights over the weekend, Greg? Uh, you mean sports highlights or just generally what happened? General Whatever your one of your favorite things that took place over the weekend. Uh, so some uh, some friends of mine are looking for a home in the area, in the Hilton Head area. And I got to tag along with them and see, not just see them experience that. And I think we've all been through the strain of, of home search and, you know, trying to find just the right place and almost never knowing whether it is the right place, but also to see how they, they approached it to see some really cool places. I mean, honestly, um, some places that I had never seen around the area. And that was really enlightening. And just to see it, what was really cool was to see how they went through the thought process as a couple and, and um, you know, communicated on what they liked or disliked or eliminated or included in their continuing search. Uh, honestly, it was kind of great to be a, just an observer, right? <laughs> right? You never know if it's the right pick until 10 years afterwards you look back oh yeah we should have did this so we did right. that right you know you never know at the time 
Hey, any, if you can take it home and, and not be uh, upset about it till 10 years later, I think you've done a really good job picking it. Right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I love that one, then, Greg. Uh, you've got new, new neighbors on the island there. Uh, Greg, and Greg's got a new headshot. Love that, uh, Greg. Um, the Viking lost was loss was his favorite thing ever. We had love that Greg Scooter. <laughs> Must be a Packer fan or a Bears fan. Um, and Kevin, uh, one of your favorite things from the weekend. Well, it's kind of it was it was it was kind of weird with respect to a favorite thing, because you know on the uh, on the weekend everybody sort of leads back and uh, nobody cooks. You're always doing fast food. And um, uh, uh, my wife Lisa and I was it was you know Saturday evening, and we were um, thinking about looking at uh, you know doing some binge watching on the TV like every that's what Americans do on Saturday <laughs> night now. Uh, <laughs> so so uh, so she she said uh, I, I, I kind of said hey so what do you want to eat tonight and she said well I don't know and I said. Hey, um, uh, you want to go get a sub, or you want to get McDonald's, or you want to get some Chinese? And you know, and she looked at me and said, "I don't want fast food. I want to go to a restaurant." Mm. <laughs> All right. And I said, "Wow, that's a great thing to do. Let's go to a restaurant." <laughs> and it was it was so much fun going out on a date with my wife. <laughs> we, we went to pf chang's talked you know had some had a couple of cocktails uh yeah the food was pretty good you know and it was like we were out you know just just enjoying a, a restaurant which was uh it's been a while so uh, that was good. That was a good thing. That was my favorite for the week. Love that, Kevin. And clearly the, yeah. uh, the production team here is big fans. Uh, very sweet, Kevin, as they say. <laughs> um, and, and Greg, you you looked for a minute, um, like a, uh, for a moment that P.F. Chang's, you've, you've been there before, big yeah. fan. Uh, they have, uh, I think they call it Mushu pork. It, it's like oh, yeah. crepes. Oh, my gosh, that stuff is so delicious. <laughs> yeah. I like the lettuce wraps, you know, yes. for the the appetizer and, the, and yeah. the, um, I had some pep, pepper steak. Uh, that was really oh, good. That sounds great. You know, I was just uh, we spent some time home with my folks over the weekend, and um, maybe not over the weekend, but one of my recent recent conversations with my mom, we talked about Mingwa's in Augusta, Georgia, which was a mm. outstanding Chinese restaurant as we were growing up, and and they had some of the best. All the food was good. But these chicken wings, holy cow. So, Mom, if you're listening today, uh, we are reminiscing on the infamous uh, Mingwa's restaurant in Augusta, GA. Okay. So, Greg and Kevin, now that you've gotten us all starving, <laughs> y'all talk about delicious food and sweet dates and, and uh, real estate transactions, let's get into some of the stories of the day. I want to start with here with this, uh, this take here. Uh, from Automotive World, from our friend at, mm -hmm. uh, Patrick Van Hole. And we're going to be talking about digital transformation's impact on moving the auto industry forward, which is obviously last few years had a really challenging time. So, Kevin, let's start with you. Give us uh, give us some of the, maybe the gist of uh, this read here. Well, you know, we've gone through uh, quite ordeal in, in supply chain. And automotive has been really um, in the pickle uh, because the increased needs of semiconductor chips and there was um i mean a car is nothing but a computer on wheels now and with the uh, the, the war and the supply chain issues there was a big issue with manufacturing uh, lines getting the parts the electronic and computer parts that they needed um also with you know inflation and uh, economic uh, instability the transportation issues and there were big changes that whipped through all of the supply supply tiers in the automotive uh, industry. So uh, increasing lead times for both the components and raw materials. So um, the automotive industry really um, took it to heart and focused on transforming 
uh, their supply chain planning in order to stay competitive. So the entire automotive industry right now is, is really looking to improve their capabilities by transitioning to digital operating models so that it can actually see and analyze data so that it can respond. And this in a this is in a, a, a global view uh, because just focusing on local or regional is just is just not not enough. Mm. And looking across industries, right? How does the semiconductor industry affect my ability to uh, produce a vehicle? And this is really kind of revolutionary uh, for the automotive industry. Mm. All right. So, Greg, I know this is one of your favorite industries. Uh, your thoughts here? Well, I mean, I think a few of us have experienced it firsthand. Eight months wait for a vehicle. It's unfortunate timing in our family. Not fortunately, I didn't pay for all these, but uh, we needed <laughs> we needed three cars during the time when it was most uh, most expensive and most difficult to to get a vehicle and we had three completely different experiences so that that goes to the complexity of the problem and to kevin your point earlier um one car was coming literally coming from germany and waiting on a wiring harness that is built in in ukraine so (laughs) um, so the the lead time just continued to extend because of that as the factories were abandoned and, um, you know, and production became more and more difficult in the cities. So, um, and of course I'm sure they shifted at some point. Right. But it's a very, very complex situation. I think the other thing we have to acknowledge is that a lot of companies that are multi-billion, some of them, the largest companies in the world have not embraced, have not embraced digital supply chains because uh, there is so much industrial espionage, particularly in the automotive industry, that they are f- afraid to announce anything too early for fear of it of the vehicle being knocked off, and mm. you know, and um, or you know, some feature that that they think keeps them ahead of the crowd being copied before they they can get the car to market. So there are some market pressures. Um, that need they need to figure out how to handle to allow them to be more transparent within their supplier uh, within their supplier tiers too. Mm. So there's just a lot. It, it's very complex. Look, all these articles that we talk about every day. They talk about disruptions and they talk about um, black swan events and all these various difficulties. Yeah. All of which are going on all the time for all of time that we've had supply chains, right? So um, it, what, ha- what, what has really changed is that now people are aware of who is failing in their supply chain and where they are failing. And there is no plausible deniability for manufacturers like there used to be or you know other players in the supply chain. And some industries, have remained pretty far behind uh, because they they had one huge margins and two this plausible deniability of mm-hmm. not being exposed or um, having in the awareness of the consumer. So now that they are, since you know what I'm going to say, Scott, the great toilet <laughs> paper shortage of 2020. <laughs> now, now that people know what a supply chain is and who the participants are. And who is really at fault in a lot of these uh, situations? It's very, it's changed the dynamic for companies for a reason different than I think any of us expected. And that's just simply the awareness of the consumer. The supply chain always worked before. And when it didn't work, it was like, oh, what's that thing that's not working now? <laughs> mm. Yeah, or it was, hey, it wasn't us, it was them. Right? <laughs> right. Three Stooges episode. One me. <laughs> but so beyond yeah. to so Greg, both y- both y'all make a lot of great points. Greg, to your point, it's tough to to dissect, especially something as as complex and as uh, as ever changing as an automotive industry in the span of you know seven minutes. 
the, the other interesting thing beyond what Kevin and Greg shared here, you we're seeing uh, ventures and more vertical in integration, which in part is meant to address some of the supply chain challenges that industry is going through. Ultium, for example, is electric vehicle battery, uh, a company that's a joint venture between General Motors and LG Energy Solutions. Uh, hopefully getting uh, GM aims that uh, aims that venture to help them get around the constrictions they've seen when it comes to getting batteries uh, and get this. I, I missed this some, uh, whenever they announced it. GM has said it will produce only electric cars starting in 2024. So we'll see if that takes place. And then, of course, on the other side of the uh, I'll call it the American coin of American uh, automotive Ford is investing in something they call Blue Oval City in Stanton, Tennessee. This is a $5.6 billion mega site. Uh, wow. Ford executives are calling it the biggest investment in a generation. Um, so who, we'll see how that plays out. But uh, Greg and Kevin, the automotive industry, holy cow. A lot of folks will talk disruption, but man, they have been uh, feeding that from the fire hose for years now, right, Greg? Yeah, I just hope Ford can get Blue Ovals to their Blue Oval City because that, <laughs> right. was, that, that was that particular thing is what held up the delivery of tens of thousands of F one fifties. Right, un unbelievable. Oh, wow. I didn't know about that. I cannot remember who. I'm sure a thousand people have said this, but the person that pointed it out to us just thought this was brilliant. How many parts does it take to make an F one fifty? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Every part in the world, right? Well, all of the parts that it takes. Yeah. Well, and there's some interesting discussion uh, beyond kind of going back to the EV. Uh, so Greg says the state of Wyoming is set to pass resolution to ban all electric vehicles by 2035. That's interesting. Tom believes that's going to be reversed. Okay. Uh, so we, we've got all kinds of um, parties and positions on this whole EV movement. Uh, what a fascinating time that we live in for sure. Um, okay, Greg and Kevin, I'm going to leave that there, though, because we got to unpack uh, something that's also very universal, and that's sneakers, right? So uh, <laughs> talking Nike. So Nike has learned a thing or two uh, when it comes to some of the omnichannel do's and don'ts. So Kevin, start us out here. So, so first, I want to uh, recognize when everybody recognize the shift, right? We've gone from automotive to retail, and the reason is because in retail this uh, this month, January, New York City is the NRF Big Show, uh, which is the largest uh, uh, retail uh, blowout uh, of the year. And um, they're really talking about the theme is, is breakthrough. And uh, I'm just doing a shameless plug for an interview I'm going to do later <laughs> this, uh, <laughs> this month uh, with Sandra Campos um, and uh, uh, IBM partner Mark Meister. Because they're talking about how the retail industry is really adopting technology. Uh, so I'm going to... These next this next this next article in Nike is retail and omni-channel inventory management and some of the challenges they ran into. In fact, at the end of 2022, Nike had a, a huge they called it epic inventory glut. Um, and they had to stage this global fire sale of sneakers. And they blamed it on ordering by retailers and faster than usual deliveries, which this is in, in, in 2022, right? Um, and it would, they were talking about how it highlighted the challenges faced by retailers trying to run this omni-channel uh, model, being able to do, you know, brick and mortar and mm. e-commerce and, you know, ordering online, pick it up in the store. Um, so Nike, their inventory was, um, was up 44% across the entire company. And that was driven by a 65% hike in North America, which is their largest 
market. And many clothes retailers are experiencing this sort of a a, a whipsaw, mm. watching inventory pile up as uh, inflation hits and consumers actually uh, reduce their spending. So, so Nike is kind of reevaluating its entire partnership model. Um, uh, they have, you know, partnerships with Foot Locker and JD Sports and, and others uh, to try to better manage the inventory challenges while extending its reach to customers uh, via the, you know, retail and wholesale model. Mm-hmm. So what they've learned is that your systems have to be flexible to evolve as new channels open and sources dry up, you know, understanding your supply chain. And then there's going to be brand new selling platforms, new marketplaces and and new e-commerce front ends that need to be integrated um, into your entire process. Um, Second, they realize that you have to be connected right in real time to all of the viable sources of inventory so that you can know if one shuts down, you can know what your alternative is. Uh, And this can only be done with web-based IT services. Um, And finally, your supply network needs to have deep knowledge of both the product and the sources of supply so that you can reach out to the most suitable option based upon the customer's location, timing, and legal or legislative uh, requirements because the laws are are changing uh, quickly. So retailers really need to understand the value of data and real-time information as they are, you know, putting out these new omni-channel models, Mm. connecting that front end with the customer to the back end of supply chain and sources. All right, Greg. Seems like omni-channel has been around forever and we're making some of the same mistakes. Seems like time and time again. Your thoughts, Greg? Yeah, I think that that is that's a that's an excellent <laughs> condensation of this discussion. Is first of all, the retailers <laughs> are not the problem. I, I mean, brands who are who, who have gone into retail are the problem because retailers the the problems that Nike is is facing here retailers solved thirty years ago. Literally, I worked with retailers who had this problem solved thirty years ago. Um, Part of the problem is the dramatic shift in business model that Nike has had to undertake because Nike was, especially in the shoe and the apparel industry, they were the big dog, right? Mm-hmm. So they mandated, they did what was called allocating to to their, their retail partners. You didn't even get a choice. They told you what you were going to get if you were Dick's Sporting Goods or, you know, or, or whomever, right? They said, you get more of this and these, and they pre-picked size ranges, which shoes, right, in what colors and what size ranges you got. They were called a dealer pack or or a vendor pack. It depends on, you know, the terminology. Um, And they just told you what you were going to get. So this, what Kevin is describing, is a dramatic shift, and they made it too fast. They really thought they understood retail and that they understood Omnichannel. And... Frankly, for decades, companies like like Nike, the big brands, have been trying to figure out how to disintermediate the retailers and go direct to the consumer. What they don't understand is that the risk and the volatility is dramatically different when you're sending ones and twos to people instead of tens or thousands to people. And um, it is an absolute shock to their system. Now, I'm not saying that the retailers are infallible here but largely the problem that's described in in this in this uh, article they're talking about some of their own stores too that are doing them dirty not just Foot Locker and not right. just exporting goods and some of these others but their own retailers because they aren't even 
connected enough to their own retail outlets to know, and they leave too much to the discretion of the store managers. And because they're used to managing to ship in big, big shipments rather than understanding the consumer, Kevin, as you were talking about, yeah. right? It's so critical to understand when and 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 where and how and what those consumers are going to buy. They have no frame of reference. So, um, re- again, retailers not infallible there, but it's a particular lift for for these brands as they try to go into omni-channel and facilitate omni-channel themselves. And remember, Nike didn't mess around. They went right. They went from shipping to retail to customized shoes. I have one daughter who bought a pair of completely customized Nike shoes. Now that is an incredible leap to to do that. It's a great marketing scheme, but it's it's very difficult transition for where Nike was coming from as a as an inventory management um, and demand management provider. That's right. That that's that's that leap. Making that leap is kind of like trying to dunk from the free throw line, like only a handful of folks could ever do <laughs> the history of the game. Um, all right. Well, Greg and Kevin, really appreciate uh, both of y'all's uh, commentary there on what's going on at Nike. Um, I'll just tell you, I did a quick pulse of um, our uh, consumer CEO here, at least, that makes all of our purchasing decisions. And <laughs> now's the time to get some Nikes, folks. That uh, epic inventory glut, which is how the article phrased it, is it real? And that 65% number year over year at the end of the quarter, last quarter here in North America, yeah. man, it is, uh, they're selling like hotcakes, right, Greg? Well, and to Kevin's point, it is the, it is the whiplash effect in action in, in spades. I mean, you know, the retailers started responding to the growing lead times from Nike just about the time Nike got their got their manufacturing facilities to deliver on time. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's a huge impact to the supply chain. So it went from huge shortage during the pandemic and then uh, everybody wanted to buy. And right. then now we don't have any money because we're going into a, you know, a recession. <laughs> right. um, you know, you really need to know the, the, the customer, where, where they are, how they feel. Agreed. That's right. Reach that. Uh, and you need to know it right now. <laughs> Seriously, you need to know it right now. Part of the problem with retail and manufacturing is that we don't do forecasting. We do postcasting. Mm-hmm. We look at history and expect that history to be a representation of the future. And when has that ever been the case? Never. We had to do it in the old days because we had no data that was any better than historical data to tell us what the future looked like. But now, there is a way to understand and predict consumers or even the individual consumer and when and where and what they're ready to buy. We have well, to start moving forward. That's right. All right. We need to, we need to create a course, Greg White on real, getting to know your customers real time. <laughs> Seriously. We, we, well, we I mean, Kevin tell- too. Kevin should teach that. He just mentioned that. And, and you know, and I think that is an excellent point. We really, it's easy. It's I think it's easier, Kevin, maybe even for you to have that perspective than it is those of us who've been told all these supply chain fallacies like the <laughs> like the, the falsehood that eteris paribus, all other things being equal, which, of course, is never the case. Never the case, right. <laughs> monologue earlier, um, but also these falsehoods that history is any indication of the future. Absolute falsehood. That's not why we use history. We simply use history because no better data was available back in the 1860s or 1903 when, by the way, a lot of these forecasting techniques were created. So now that there is better data, we need to make that transition. Kevin, okay. get out front. Yeah, yes, sir. <laughs> well, uh, we'll have to. Uh, so, Kevin, that sounds like a challenge to me. So, uh, Greg and Kevin saves the world Let's coming to a, a theater near you. <laughs> Um, hey, really quick, uh, folks, don't take our word for it. Y'all go check out the article. We dropped the link to each of these news stories in our chat. Let us know what your take is. We'd love, we'd welcome that. Um, and hello, Gene Pledger, good old GP. Great to see you here. Or Gino, we should say, Greg and Kevin, Gino. Yeah, that's um, right. We get to call him Gino now, right? 
That is right. Rock and roll drummer and supply chain practitioner. Great to see Gino. Uh, Islam says, and great to see you here via LinkedIn, says the more agile supply chains are, the more successful omnichannel inventory control they will be. Islam, great, great point there and great to have you here with us today. Need that um, feedback. That's right. Mm-hmm. Keep that feedback coming. And, and Tony Hines says, hey, great points, Greg. Keep it coming. Tony, great to see you here via LinkedIn. Yeah, thanks, Tony. He'll keep making more. Keep uh, keep consuming it. Greg White makes more. Um, there's a there's an old 80s <laughs> commercial somewhere there. Krispy Kreme or Dunkin' Donuts or something. Hopefully Krispy Kreme. <laughs> making everybody hungry again. I want to share, Greg and Kevin, uh, a really quick announcement, and we talk about this a lot. We've been supporting this for going back, I think, seven, eight months is when it initially launched. This is our Leveraging Logistics for Ukraine ongoing initiative. Uh, our, the next monthly planning session is February 7th at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Greg and Kevin, let me tell you, I was just I sat in on uh, the last planning session for this. Mm. And, uh, it, you know, it, it, there is work being done. However, they've been bringing in guest speakers um, that really tell some very powerful perspective. And I'm going to get this gentleman's name wrong. Uh, Bakrut Brad, I think is his name. It's his nickname. And this is an American that's in Far East Ukraine. And he is helping marshal resources, you know, uh, moving people, helping people, helping lots of the pets because there's a ton of dogs and cats and that, that, you know, their owners, um, unfortunately are not, no longer there. And he was mm. telling some of what he sees firsthand in this planning session. Mm. And it was, it was, you know, stop in your tracks type of perspective. So folks, um, if you're not in position to help out the initiative, Hey, no worries. Just show up, be present, soak in the information and perspective that's, that, that, um, is, cre- is, is shared and distributed here. And the next planning session again, February 7th, 11 a.m. Eastern time. And we have dropped that link in the comments. Greg, uh, oh, really quick, updated number. Yeah, that's uh, what I was going to ask. 675,000 pounds of humanitarian uh, aid has been shipped as a result of just this effort. So, wow. and wow. over, over 2,000 letters have been delivered, uh, handwritten by um, kids and folks here in the States to school children, primarily in Ukraine, you know, uplifting messages that, uh, you know, uh, just this may sound simple, but very, very powerful. So kudos to Vector Global Logistics. Love their leadership. All the folks have supported. Uh, Greg, your quick comment on this ongoing initiative. That's 338 tons, people. That's a lot. That is a lot <laughs> of goods. Um, so thank you to everyone who's contributed to that. Um Look, I mean, this is this is going to go on for a while. I still don't understand why, but it, I mean, I think this is going to continue to go on. But um, so you know, just keep it in the forefront of your mind. It continues to impact global global commerce and supply chain and real human lives every single day. So, yeah, yeah. I know um, over the weekend. Um, I don't know if you look at Fareed Sicario on, on CNN, but uh, on his show on Sunday, he actually interviewed uh, Elena Zelenska, the, the wife of the president, uh, uh, Valimir Zelensky of uh, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about, he asked the question, you know, well, uh, what are the women doing now that you know all, all the men are at, at the at the front? And she was talking about how women were taking care of the uh, home front. You know, I don't want to sound sexist, but mm. you know the women were taking care of the children, and women were making sure that the uh, children were were teaching. The the um, uh, women were uh, uh, trying to make life normal. Uh, mm-hmm. for the family as, as normal as, as they could. And it was really uh, incredible some of the efforts that were being driven by women because the, the men were at the front. And she talked also about the fact that over uh, 4 million, uh, 5 million people were displaced um, and as many as 4 million are actually left the country. Um, and, uh, and 
it's the it's the mothers and the grandmothers that are keeping the logistics lines open uh, across the the family, uh, and that's a that's a very important job that is underappreciated. You know, when yeah. you just keep talking about the the front lines, I mean, this thing is going to you know be over. Uh, it's not going to go on forever. And then one of the things she mentioned was that trying to tell the kids that it it is valuable for you to still go to school. Mm. You still need to go to college. You still need to prepare for the future because what's happening now is, is temporary and you will have a, a different life. Um, so it's the women that are protecting the future of uh, Ukraine. Mm. I mean, the, the I mean, the you know, most of the men, there are a lot of women at the front lines also. Right. I saw the story That's about right. this woman sniper. She was like the number one sniper uh, in the Ukrainian uh, military. And, I mean, they're doing what needs to be done now, uh, the military and the front lines. But the, 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 the mothers and the grandmothers in the rear mm. are, are really protecting the future of the society. And that's an important job. That's a critical job. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, Kelly Barner and I, I spent a few months, uh, uh, Kelly, of course, of uh, Dial P for Procurement and Art of Procurement and Buyer's Meeting Point fame. Uh, she's a rock and roll star. Uh, Kelly and I interviewed a procurement practitioner uh, that was from Ukraine and, and had to evacuate. And, man, her testimony of what she had to endure. But to your point, Kevin, Greg, you touched on this. They continue to lead. Right, they find a way. Uh, Amanda and, and Catherine, if y'all can find the um, link to that episode, that would be uh, a great replay here in 2023. Um, okay, well let's keep let's keep moving uh, on a much much lighter note. Uh, we've got this story here, and Greg, this was part of of your ever popular uh, supply chain commentary every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on LinkedIn. Y'all check that out. You touched on uh, fashion brand Mango as reported by Supply Chain Dive. Hey, it's betting big on supply chain transparency and using it to help push its sustainability efforts forward. Greg, tell us more. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of companies have been trying to do this for a lot of years, and I just thought this was a great, a great example because of a couple of things. One, a relatively new company, Mango, is only ten years old, and two, they are in the fashion industry, which is uh, by far, by far the biggest contributor to social injustice and environmental impact mm. in, in the retail trade. Um, uh, just unconscionable. Some of the things that happen to ha have our clothes made and, and shipped to us, even just getting the cotton for them, you know, anything from slave labor in Xinjiang province to intentionally underpaid People in various countries around the world, Bangladesh and other places, there are hundreds, thousands of reports there. Mango is trying to do the right thing by creating supply chain transparency, which for them, in their case means identifying their every one of their top three tiers of, of suppliers. Now, I don't know how deep their supply chain goes, how many tiers it is. Could be more, but that, that is an incredible undertaking and it's a very noble undertaking you know i've been studying this supply chains and their depth and breadth and impact and the combinatorial analytics that are required to manage those supply chains um because all things are never equal um and and to kevin's er earlier point you need to understand all of those players and all of those complexities to be able to do anything and what i've realized is that because of of consumer awareness and government mandates like the, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, Scope 1, 2, and 3 emission standards, EU standards, and UK standards, that um, understanding your just your emissions Im impact is mm -hmm. now mandatory. Transparency is mandatory, and yet transparency is utterly impossible. So... Uh, you know, what I talk about in that commentary is how companies can approach that, um, how some companies have done it to date. I offer up the Mango article as a really good uh, example, at least for a starting point, and, and talk about how critical 
this transparency is, but also the doing something with that transparency, not just pointing your finger and going, ha, gotcha, you're a polluter, <laughs> right? But right, being right. able to do something with it, because what is the point? I mean, unless you're just an activist, what is the point of just pointing someone out as being, um, you know, unsustainable or, or you have, having excessive carbon emissions? The point is being able to enable your supply chain, your commerce partners, to be able to to perform in a more ethical or more sustainable method. And that's what I talk a little bit about is how we'll get to that next stage, how we'll start to apply technologies throughout the supply chain, probably enabled from the top, from the brand or from the retailer um, down to their to their supply chain participants to allow them to recognize that that they are polluters um, and then to help them alleviate that situation. Now, we'll always have the ne'er-do-wells, right? The people who are constantly dodging that, um, you know, that can't can't do business legitimately and, you know, will constantly dodge that. But there are ways to attack that as well. It's not worth going into that here. But um, but anyway, that's that was what that really inspired me to think was how do companies make that happen? Because it is utterly impossible today. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think sustainability, sustainability is, is really the challenge of our, our age. And this is a, 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 a great point to bring up that today is the first day of the World Economic Forum in Davos uh, uh, for Davos 2023. It starts today the 16th and goes through the 20th. And the, the theme is cooperation in a fragmented world. And one of the big areas they're focused on is sustainability. Um, and in fact, I mean, you, you think about sustainability. We just went through the, uh, the Christmas holiday. And like it was like, uh, you know, every week the trash uh, truck comes down our street, you know, and they pick up the trash. And like for two weeks in a row, there's just piles in front of my house of packaging material. <laughs> um, and it's like, you know, why do I have to have big boxes, multiple boxes for a little, a physically small item? Uh, because we're all shifting. You know, I, I was thinking about you know, we're all shifting to e-commerce. And what does that mean? Everything is getting shipped in boxes and in plastic and then wrapped it, wrapped. And, you know, so uh, the the other thing is that these consumer goods um, create so many, so much plastic waste um, that companies like Procter & Gamble and Coca-Cola are becoming targets for activism mm-hmm. uh, be, because the green groups are blaming them for fouling the oceans with plastics uh, because of a, a, a lack of um, attention to sustainability. And uh, they're really pushing governments to regulate this um, uh, this, this packaging this packaging aspects. So, I mean, sustainability is, uh, if, if, we, if we're not sustainable, we're going to lose mm. our earth. And this is the only earth, this is the only home uh, we have. Mm. Uh, well said there, Kevin. And, you know, Greg, we've talked about that time and time and time again, a tidal wave of packaging. You and I, I think, have exchanged images right. from our families. Um, but one last thought. Hey, uh, a little quick shout out. Uh, of course, we're all big fans of James Malley and cool things are doing at Packerit. Uh, so y'all check that out. Um, also, we can't, you know, because of some of the recycling changes that have taken place in that in that landscape the last couple of years, of course, glass is not being recycled. It, there's there's got to be some smart folks out there that can take glass, melt it all down, create some kind of um, non-fragile uh, byproduct. Then, then we can use for packaging. I don't know. It, I hate buying anything glass these days because you can't recycle it. You know, they won't even pick it yeah. up. That's a shame. Uh, it's got to change. But anyway, I digress. Well, I mean, it used to be recyclable, didn't it? But the right. economics didn't work. So I think we have to acknowledge that people can't do sustainability out of the goodness of their heart. They have to do it out of the well-being of their 
of their economic situation. Look, it has to be an economic model. Yeah. The largest polluters in the world by far relative to their population are are underdeveloped countries, except for mm-hmm. China, though they've convinced everyone they're an un, uh, undeveloped country. Um, you know, it's India, it's Indonesia, it's company, it's it's countries like that. We have to enable and lift these people up to a higher standard of, live, of living to allow them to even care about sustainability. Because right now, so many people in Africa and, and Asia, all they care about is survival. And that's really all they can care about is, mm. is survival. You know, there's the, there's the, the hierarchy of needs, right? Mm-hmm. You can start to have things like self-awareness and self-actualization once your basic needs are met. Mm. It's a fact. And we, that needs to be a significant part of the sustainability initiative. I don't know what we're going to do about China because they are bad actors as a nation. Mm-hmm. I mean, not not the people, the government, um, but they are bad actors, and there is no there's no reason for them to change because they control commerce. Mm-hmm. Let's face it. The last time they were threatened, two times they were threatened at COP 27 and COP 26. They had they had a, a blackout. So, strangely, they were low on power. And then at COP27, they just basically said, either call us a developing nation or we're cutting everything off. (laughs) um, You know, I don't know what we do about China, but if we can clean up all the rest of it. Did you know this, that a company, uh, a company's uh, 92 percent of a company's emissions are from their supply chain? Wow. So initiatives like what you're talking about, like packaging better or packaging more efficiently or cutting the length of routes, or you know, not shipping air when we can avoid it, things like that. All of those things cut the number of trucks and ships and aircraft, and, you know, around the planet. Yeah. And there are all kinds of things that we can do that right. are, by the way, economically neutral, or maybe even economically beneficial to to these companies to allow them to reduce their their. Um, emissions, but it is going to come down to economics and it's not going to come from the goodness, particularly of a company's heart, because a company is not a human. Mm. Right. <laughs> it's full of humans, right. but a company has, it, it has other obligations, you know, in addition to obviously being a good citizen of the planet. Um, so right. we, you know, we have to make it economically feasible and there is a way to do it. It is not a zero sum game. I don't care what any politician says. <laughs> well, and, and Tom makes a good point here. Hey, Davos and sustainability, great. Just don't mention all the private jets. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Everybody flying in on private jets and talk uh, about the environment. That's right. a good, sustainability. Really good talk point. to talk about the yeah. sustainability. Yeah. Right. Hey, Catherine shares, uh, I can't remember the company, but I recently got a package where the insulation was water soluble. You could just run oh. underwater and it dissolves. I'm not sure the cost or impact of that. That's a what a great idea. I've not heard of that. Warm starch. So they were so they do that with plastic bags in many countries. It's 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 not exactly plastic, but it's a plastic like made out of cornstarch. So oh cornstarch. I was about to ask. So what chemicals go into the Chesapeake Bay when I do that in my sink? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to have a lot of fat fish. <laughs> right. Uh, that's great. All right. But, but look at it this way. If you fry them, oh, it's like man. feeding the mayo to the tuna. Right? <laughs> if you fry them, they're already breaded. Oh, already breaded. <laughs> love that. Okay. So obviously the, um, deserves a fuller conversation, but I appreciate Kevin, Greg, and both y'all weighing in. We're going to wrap up on kind of a fun story here today. Uh, Retail trends. So uh, the folks over at RRS have identified a variety of 2023 retail trends. And uh, Kevin, give us a few of your favorites from this article here. Yeah, so this is really talking about a retail industry again. And it's really bouncing back. 2022 was really marked by innovation across uh, retail, where the uh, retailers are going into immersive experiences, you know, with the uh, uh, VR and IR and and leveraging artificial intelligence and machine learning in order to automate the processes and increase their efficiencies. 
So um, what uh, for so in 2023, what are the technologies that you as consumer are going to uh, see as these omni-channel retailers are really reaching out to understand you better? So the first thing is data, data, data. Mm-hmm. Data is being increasingly leveraged to make real-time decisions. That's what uh, Nike learned, right? Uh, the second thing is hyper-personalization. Mm-hmm. That's a big area of focus, okay? They need data about you so they can create a product or service that fits your life, your needs, your expectations. Um, and, and finally, um, 15, 20% of SKUs are going on camera, right? They're getting a video uh, because you need to be able to see it if you're going to buy it off of the e-commerce websites. And pictures is just not enough. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all of the skew items are becoming movie stars. (laughs) So, so (laughs) Just like Kevin L. Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) So video is huge. Um, uh, across across retail, so that you can feel comfortable buying it off the uh, the e-commerce website. All that makes sense, doesn't makes it? Makes sense to me. And, <laughs> and Greg, I loved your uh, Vogue uh, you were doing a second ago. Uh, your thoughts on these retail trends? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, as Kevin, as you're talking about this, and as as I read this article, I thought about the ways that I would like to share data with with various yeah. companies I have for, and to go back to shoes, I can't wear Nike shoes because at least in the past, they have not had uh, shoes with high enough arches. So I wear ASICs instead. And, um, uh, you know, and I am a, I am what's called a supinator. So some people, when they feet hit their, their ankles roll in like this, I, I put my heel down first. It's hard to explain. It doesn't matter. I push off, with, <laughs> push off with the balls of your feet. When you walk and you hit and you hit he outside of your heel first, you are a supinator. Um, pronators is the other option. Uh, anyway, I would like to be able to pick any kind of shoe and send them my in step and have them form an in a custom in step for custom their step. shoe. Okay, right? Um, because there are a lot of shoes that I really like that I cannot wear. So I, I was thinking about those those kind of hyper personalizations. I think that that would be the ones that consumers value and will give access to are um, are obviously hugely valuable. My concern, Kevin, and I'm curious what your thoughts here uh, on this are: is mm-hmm. will there be a distinction between the data you want to share and the data that, <laughs> right the data that you that they capture because much like a website, have you given, have you given permission to use your data merely by walking in the store, just like you have, just like you have by going on a website, will there be a, you know, something like that for a store, some sort of acknowledgement. The other question is in the fear is that, I mean, they put a lot of investment into hyper-personalizing the product or service that they give it to you so they can get the money out of your wallet. But how much have they invested in protecting that data that they're collecting? Uh-huh. Because as soon as you I give them the data, the next yeah. next thing you know, it's you know, it's on the, the dark web. <laughs> so um it's uh it's a it's a very tough uh tough issue right there. Slippery there's not slow. enough investment in the protection of the data. That's one thing. Second, there's not enough uh, laws on the books mm-hmm. to protect the data. The United States, for instance, does not have a national data protection law. You know, right. People like talk GDPR about GDPR in the EU, right? Yeah, like GDPR in the EU. We don't have anything like that in, in the United States. We have some industry-specific laws that are very specific on the type of data. But in general, in the United States... Um, uh, a company can use your data for whatever they want to use it for. And they Man. can, and if they lose it, there's really no big penalties. We got to address that here in 2023. Uh, hey, really quick. Uh, for So from this RIS piece, uh, it talked about Stitch Fix. 
uh, their customer survey data. Now, they, they're reporting that 90% of their customers prize quality apparel over quantity. And there's a movement afoot. Y'all may have seen this in article too. I don't know if it's a thing or if they were just referencing it, but it's called the intentional wardrobe where consumers more and more are looking for high quality, flexible, multi-use clothing that is, get this, trend proof. So I can say wow. I've been ahead of this trend for years, <laughs> as my uh, as Amanda would would, <laughs> would tell you. I wear the same thing for 20 years. That's right. right. I, I mean, cares about fat. <laughs> how is that? I wonder if they've ever sold clothes to guys before, because that doesn't seem like such a revelation, does it? <laughs> Not in the loot now, at least. If I didn't have to buy new clothes, I wouldn't. Right. I mean, I'm with you. If they wear out, that's when I that's when I get a new fashion. <laughs> so, um, all right, well, let's wrap with a couple of quick comments here. So, hey, Leah Luton enjoyed the buzz today. She There's says, Thank you for Martin, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, what he stood for. But here, get this. Leah says, Hey, Greg, try OrthoFeet. Great shoes, and you can wear for 60 days. If you aren't satisfied, then you can return it. She loves hers. How about that? I'll try wow. that. Give and, that. And, you know, there are places that will make you custom insoles, or I think they call them orthotics. And then you mm-hmm. just pull the old ones out of your shoes and put it put that in your shoe. Okay. The difference being the varying widths and et cetera. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So well, maybe yeah. maybe that can be fixed with Tony's comment. Perhaps when we print shoes for personal use, you'll get your wish, Greg. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, who knows? Uh, Tony, also a big fan of data protection uh, uh, point. Kevin, you just made excellent point there. And Catherine says, hey. Yes, or a capsule wardrobe where all the pieces go together and are more classic trends. That's a great idea. Uh, the animals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as long as they have their right. I don't, I don't know. Giraffe with yes. the giraffe. Gosh, gosh, <laughs> gosh. Giraffes together. Yeah. Love that. Um, all right. Well, Greg and Kevin, what a great hour. It's going by so fast, uh, folks. Oh, all the love. It's all already? Jeez. Can you believe that? <laughs> um, so here, I want, this is how I want to wrap. I know we're a minute or two over, but this is, uh, of course, uh, a special day. And a day, you know, when I, what we were sharing over the weekend is that, you know, one day is not enough. I, for one, really appreciate the focus that at least Martin Luther King Day, uh, Martin Luther, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day brings. But as we all know, we, we got we to gotta honor what he stood for all year round. So with that said, I want to wrap with this. I want to get Kevin and Greg both to issue a challenge to all of our listeners out there when it comes to leadership and leading like Dr. King. Um, if both of y'all could issue a challenge to our audience, and Greg, I want to start with you. When, it, when As we wrap up here, what is one challenge when it comes to leading like Dr. King that folks should keep front and center? Uh, well, I, I think back to one of his sermons at Dexter Avenue Church um, where he said, don't let... Uh, bitterness and anger um, from your real or perceived sufferings or injustices, do not let those um, drive you. Maintain your forward motion, to Kevin's point, before maintain moving forward. Internalize that, fight it internally, rise above it, and and build yourself up in spite of it. It, it mm. can be done. It has been done by many, many people. And, and I, I really, honestly, that was probably, uh, as big for me, not, not black, obviously, but born poor, dirt poor. Um, and you know, the way the socioeconomic levels in any country work is everybody wants their level and they don't want anybody new coming up from the bottom. So uh, by the way, in my experience, regardless of race, color or creed, or what a nice guy you are, um, but, but I think that has been, that sort of man, mantra has served many, many people, including Dr. King himself very well. Of course he was angry and of course he was bitter. And of course he didn't, he felt that he was being, you know, suffering injustice every single day, I'm sure. But he didn't let that deteriorate his actions and deteriorate his understanding of how you move forward and how you move up. And I just thought, I just think that that is so, so important that it's so important to fight yourself as much as fight the injustice. So well said, Greg, uh, Kevin. 
So one of uh, my favorite MLK quote is that our lives begin to end the day we become silent about the things that matter. So I challenge you never to be silent about things that matter. A, a, a leader, a transform transformational leader, has to be driven by a set of inner values, okay? That drives a courage to stand up in front of adversity and to do the right thing, especially when no one is watching. Mm. Our convictions and our emotional commitment that we, we feel to something bigger than ourselves has to be paramount. Mm. That, that, those create the moves that inspire others. Mm -hmm. So don't be silent about mm. things that really matter. Well said. I, lo I love that we wrapped on this. Uh, so Greg and Kevin, thank you both so much. And thank you for spending some of your time here on this very special day. Uh, engaging this conversation and, of course, all of our listeners around the world. Uh, folks, on, with all that said, um, it's all about deeds, not words. Uh, to paraphrase uh, Dr. King, uh, you know, if you can't sprint, run. If you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl. But keep moving forward and doing for others. So with that said, on behalf of our entire team here, on behalf of Greg and Kevin, Amanda, Catherine, everyone behind the scenes, Scott Luton challenged you to do good, to give forward, and to be the change. Go out and do something here today. With that said, we'll see you next time right back here on Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at supplychainnow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now. Supply Chain Now.